Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 91 of the Impact Group. My name is Evelyn Arns and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Sway Kwok. Sway Kwok is the founder and CAO of Calm Clarity social enterprise that uses science to help people master their mind and be their best self. A refugee from Vietnam and a graduate of Harvard College and the Wharton MBA program, Kwok overcame the long-term effects of poverty and trauma by turning to neuroscience and meditation. After building a successful international business career in management consulting and private equity investments, Kwok created the Calm Clarity program to make mindful leadership accessible to people of all backgrounds. On today's podcast, we'll discuss Sway's insight into the key mindset to be your best self. We'll get Sway's thoughts and perspective on opportunities for change makers. And we'll hear what Sway believes can be done to be personally successful. Sway, thank you very much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Oh, it's an honor for me to be part of the show. I love social enterprises and being able to help other people who are building social enterprises is fantastic. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. And could you please share a bit with us about your background and what led you to create the Calm Clarity program? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, a lot of times when people grow up in low-income communities, they feel very disempowered and they feel like, you know, they have to play by the rules and do things um, according to whatever nonprofit rules or donor-driven programs have them do. And I realized, like, it really takes away your dignity. When I was growing up, um, my, I was a refugee from Vietnam, growing up in inner-city Philadelphia. There was just such a sense of shame and having no dignity when you have to work through the system and figure out how to make ends meet and how to take care of your family there was a sense that people looked at you like, you know, you were living off the system, you were a pariah, that, you know, there was this cycle of poverty and people didn't really want you to break it. You know, in order to follow the rules, you had to stay poor and, and, and give up your power. And I was always very angry about what it was like to be in these neighborhoods and the sense of hopelessness and frustration that to get support, you had to basically give away your power. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to find a way out of this and have a sense of dignity and self-respect as well. And my parents, um, when they escaped Vietnam, you know, it was because they wanted me and my brother who were born there to have a good life, to have access to education. And it was worth risking their lives, our lives, in order to have these opportunities. And so I knew that in order to pay back my parents' sacrifices, I needed to get a good education. And so that became my path out. I was academically gifted 
and I got into Harvard College eventually. And you know what drove me to you know keep working hard and not give up and not you know become hopeless was that I was determined to find a path and come back to the inner city and try to break this cycle, whatever this cycle was of hopelessness, negativity, and frustration. And so when I got to Harvard, what I didn't realize was that I had witnessed so much violence or experienced so much violence as a young child and then throughout my childhood that I had all this suppressed post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And while I was in my community and it was normal to be you know, subjugated to so much violence and we had a like a social support network because everyone was going through the same thing. Yeah. Um, when I got to Harvard and realized that most of my peers came from very privileged, affluent backgrounds and they didn't understand what I had experienced and they looked at me with horror. If I did share my story, I became socially isolated. Mm-hmm. And that's how the PTSD symptoms finally like exploded to the surface. And I started dissociating, having nightmares, flashbacks, I couldn't pull myself together. It became harder and harder to get out of bed and go to class and and stay functional. And I began to have terrible panic attacks and I I didn't know what was wrong with me. And so, you know, when you have mental health issues and it's stigmatized, you cannot let people find out. So you withdraw even more. But eventually I decided to get help. And that was when my life changed because the psychiatrist explained that as I shared my story, all the adversity that I had experienced in my childhood had impacted my brain and that symptoms, the way it impacted my brain might not be curable, right? Uh, So on one hand, I felt vindicated or I felt a sense of relief that it wasn't my fault. I wasn't weak, you know, and it was a miracle that I had come from my background and ended up at Harvard. But it was also very devastating because I could have these symptoms the rest of my life and it was hard to go through Harvard when your brain's impaired, right? And so, you know, then I realized like mental health issues isn't just affecting me. It would be affecting everyone who came from my background who had trauma. And I also was determined to then find a way out of this and maybe one day be of benefit to other people going through what I had to go through. Given that I had no health insurance growing up for the most part, and I was going to lose health insurance when I finished at Harvard, I decided to use the vast library and resources there to teach myself about the brain and develop mind hacking techniques so I could wean myself off medication and therapy upon graduation and not relapse. And so I went about going on my self-assigned project and luckily I did manage to graduate with honors and graduate, like stop taking medication and stop taking therapy and, and still stay healthy from, from there on. So that was a big milestone for me. And when I came back to the inner city after graduating, I realized so many of my friends also went through similar issues, but no one could talk about it because of the stigma and the shame yeah. and the sense that we were all alone and we had to tough this out. And so, you know, it occurred to me that there's got to be a way that people don't have to keep reinventing the wheel because generations of first-generation college students are going through this experience, yet, you know, why do we feel like we're the first ones or we're going through this alone? There's got to be some way to change the status quo. But at that time, I had no power. I had no networks. I had graduated from Harvard, but I didn't have any experience or skills. (laughs) I didn't know how to create change. So at that point, I decided, you know, I need to build those skills. 
So I went into management consulting to understand how to create change and run organizations and um, how corporations are managed Mm -hmm. and then ended up going to business school and applied to business school with this concept that after getting my MBA, I would one day eventually start a nonprofit that would help kids growing up in low-income communities develop their leadership. (laughs) And I didn't know exactly how I would do it, but I just had this belief or vision that somehow I would find a way to make it happen. But of course, after you finish business school, you have all this debt. (laughs) So I went back into management consulting, but this time I wanted to um, experience uh, living in Asia, you know, my roots, my heritage. Mm -hmm. And there was always this hole inside where I didn't really understand where I'd come from and I didn't feel like a complete human being. So I got my firm to transfer me to the greater China practice and I worked across Asia, and then I eventually got recruited to run a private equity team in Vietnam, the land where I was born. And so I was like, how can I turn that down? <laughs> and so I went to Vietnam and you know, started doing growth capital, private equity investments, which was very exciting. It was a frontier market, and there you know, I met people who were kind of building social enterprises and got more um, interested and fascinated by the idea of you know, using business skills to make change. And then eventually I got recruited by a social impact investor to do private equity deals for his platform. But we ended up disagreeing on how, like, what's the best way of doing it. So, but at that time, I uh, had gotten fascinated with meditation because um, of all this research on neuroscience that was coming out on how um, meditation changes the brain. And I had been following, you know, developments in neuroscience for so long. I was like a brain geek in my spare time. So this social impact investor had helped me get a one-year visa to India. So when we agreed to disagree, I was like, you know what? <laughs> Let me just go and do some soul searching because I want to be a social entrepreneur, but I don't know what I'm going to build. I don't know how I can make a difference. Like, how do I cross over from the social impact side to the social mm-hmm. entrepreneur side? Like, what am I passionate about? What can I give the world? And so I went off. I bought a one-way ticket to India, ended up in Dharamsala, spent a month there in different retreat settings. And what I didn't realize at that time was that, like, mind hacking would become what I would offer the world. <laughs> You know, the things that I was about to learn about how meditation changes the brain from direct personal experience was what I would end up offering as a social entrepreneur. And it's been an incredible journey since then. So, you know, for me, I think like it is a combination of like my life experience, the hardships that I've overcome and seeing all the dots connect, you know, through the thing that I'm most passionate about, which is neuroscience and and self-improvement, right? And being able to offer that type of training to other people because, I mean, quite frankly, we all want to end the cycle of poverty. We want people who come from low-income backgrounds to succeed and transition. But there's no training to help somebody who came from the bottom of the pyramid adjust socially and culturally to that type of transition, right? To the loss of identity, not understanding where your tribe is anymore, being cut off from the place that you came from and not really belonging to the new socioeconomic group that, you know, you kind of superficially belong to and trying to find your place in the world and how you can make a difference, right? We, that's not a Cinderella fairy tale ending. Mm-hmm. People who have to bridge, 
two sides of the divide have a very complicated psychosocial life. And um, so many people who have like been successful academically have not been happy, you know, and have lived lives of like quiet suffering because they don't, they feel like they're an imposter. They never really fit into the new group. You're making a really great bridge between the scientific knowledge and uh, people from all backgrounds that you can connect with in a language that everybody understands. At least when I read your book, this is what I feel. And I think this is uh, something that you don't see it every day. <laughs> so thank you for that. Sure. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges of my life was, you know, being thrust from this very poor neighborhood into Harvard and having to go to school with people whose parents are governors, senators, vice president of the United States, people who are CEOs, ambassadors, like just, you're like, who are, you, who are your parents? Like, what do they do? You know, like, what? And I have to go to class with you and I'm supposed to compete with you for jobs? Like, how am I supposed to do that, right? But flipping that and realizing that these people are just as vulnerable, insecure, scared about the future as I was. And, you know, the level of perfectionism, neuroticism, inner torture at Harvard is unbelievable. And so you, you start to have a lot of empathy for people, even though, you know, when I was growing up, I, I just imagined they lived a fantasy life. But once you get to know them, you realize that they suffer just as much as I suffer, but in different ways. You know, then I just learned to be strong and be there for my friends, even if they had, you know, billions of dollars to inherit. <laughs> Could you please tell us more about the Calm Clarity program and the impact you're having? Which, which groups are you working with at the moment? Sure. sure. I mean, our idea, my idea in the beginning, um, the vision was to create a world-class neuroscience-based uh, mindful leadership program that would benefit executives of Fortune 500 companies and to share the same high-quality program to people from disadvantaged backgrounds, communities, because too often people who grow up without resources don't have a choice. And so donors or nonprofits or schools just give them crap and they can't turn it down, right? Yeah. And I wanted to make sure, you know, the people who could benefit most from really good leadership training could actually have access to it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so the idea was to create one standard of excellence and, and um, know that if I develop something that's really powerful, um, that could change life of someone growing up in the inner city, it would definitely be able to help someone who's running a company, right? Because, <laughs> yes. um, you know, adults are just big kids. And in fact, if you can design something that engages like a 14, 15-year-old in the inner city, then you're guaranteed to be able to, to engage a, a corporate leader. And and that was a, a challenge, right, To because the program couldn't be too academic. It had to be concrete. It couldn't be too intellectual. It had to be like a Discovery Channel episode where the students would be so mesmerized by learning about themselves that they would pay attention, you know, that it would naturally trigger their curiosity about how their mind works. And I knew that, you know, kids, even though they might act cynical, they love learning. They can't help it. Um, when they get fascinated. So the idea was to give them a sense of awe and wonder. And so that's how I went into these schools. I told my story and tried to captivate them with how the mind worked and how their mind in particular worked with like um, 
videos and illustrations and exercises and, and you know it was very very interactive and you could see the students like were reluctant but then they'd never seen anything like that before <laughs> so they like you couldn't help engaging when I guided them with meditation you could hear a pin drop in the room what I ended up doing was trying to simplify neuroscience to the point where the students could just immediately understand, grasp it, and apply it in their lives. So it couldn't be academic or intellectual. It wasn't about memorizing names of brain anatomy, which, you know, would have lost them. So I, I shared with them about, you know, three emotional states of the brain, how, you know, when you're born, um, these structures that allow the fight-flight threat system to work, you know, are fully formed so you can survive. And when they're triggered, they're overactivated, you just live your life expecting threats and seeing threats where none might exist, right? You're over-interpreting threats and you can be in a constant state of angry, mm -hmm. um, anger and frustration and, and paranoia even. And it keeps you from building meaningful relationships because I call that inner Godzilla mode. You just want to smash things or disappear. Yeah. And then we talk about the next stage that develops, you know, the that this pattern tends to take over in adolescence, um, brain 2.0, which I call the inner teen wolf. And when, when that happens, you just want to win carrots, right? Things that you think you need to be happy. And for a teenager, it might be grades or it might be popularity, getting the person you're crushing on to like you back. Mm -hmm. If all your classmates have a certain sneaker, you need it too. They all have a certain gadget, you want it too, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all or nothing thinking. So if you don't get that thing that you really want, you think your life is over and you'll be miserable, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the kids identified with that. And they could see that swinging between brain 1.0 and 2.0 was making them miserable, right? Because if you really want a carrot and you can't get it, you end up in inner Godzilla mode. Like they were totally connected. Yeah. And then, you know, I told them about brain 3.0, which is your higher brain. And unfortunately for them, they don't, it doesn't fully form until your mid-20s. But fortunately for them, through neuroplasticity, they could accelerate its development. And this is part of the brain that, you know, gives you self-mastery um, and helps you be your highest self to express your highest and best qualities, like being compassionate, understanding, patient, seeing a bigger picture. Um, it's the you that you really want to be when you look in the mirror. And so we um, did mind hacking exercises to activate Brain 3.0. And once the kids experienced it, they were like, my God that's the real me. Like when I'm in brain 1.0, brain 2.0, like I don't know who that person is. It's like this monster takes over, but it's only when I'm in brain 3.0 that I'm like, that is me. You know, I want to be that person. Oh, and it was so great. quick, you know, the kids could see and sense that. And so many of them emotionally, you know, made a commitment that they want to spend more time in brain 3.0 and they themselves would then practice the meditations and exercises on their own because they wanted to be that person. <laughs> you know, it was, we were tapping into intrinsic motivation oh, and it was really powerful. So with each module, we layered on more aspects of how to be in Brain 3.0, different exercises, different skills you can develop within the Brain 3.0 neural circuitry. And you have to use it or lose it, right? And so the students would, you know, be more proactive about, or be more intentional about activating those circuits so they could grow stronger. Um, so it was really amazing to watch students transform in short, short periods of time. The kids who came in wanting to get into fights eventually became peacemakers within five weeks.
And we only ran the program like once a week for about three hours and for this particular pilot. Um, and so that was amazing to see because these were students in West Philadelphia who everyone had kind of written off. And people told me, like, you're kind of crazy for even trying this at that school, at that place. And I was like, well, we'll see. I mean, this is a pilot. I won't know until I do it. And the transformations were so amazing that I was like, okay, this works. <laughs> you know, I've proven to myself this is worth doing. And then the idea after that was how do we build a business model to make this sustainable I had bootstrapped those pilots and I needed now to like build a source of revenue so we began to then tweak the program for professionals so that it would be engaging and resonant for professionals too and so now we have you know fortune 500 companies interested in our work you know and they love the social impact model basically we wanted to make it part of our DNA and so we've developed this buy one give one aspect so when we started running weekend um, retreats these workshops where people buy tickets to join it was a give one model so we were able to start the college scholar program where we could invite first generation college students from low-income backgrounds to attend the same retreat for free alongside the professionals who buy tickets and it was really really meaningful like when some of the professionals and students were paired together. The professionals said, like, they learned so much from being paired with their with students. And the yeah. students would say things that were so profound and meaningful. The professionals were in awe. Right. Uh, what mindset do you believe is key and transversal to successfully achieve your goals? Well, I mean, I call it brain 3.0. Right? It's when you can be your best self, when you're activating the circuitry that allows you to express your highest qualities, your ideals, your core values, your aspirations. The, it's not necessarily a mindset, but like if you develop the ability to notice when you're being hijacked by Brain 1.0 or Brain 2.0, when you have the ability to calm your inner Godzilla and inner Teen Wolf, mm -hmm. like you can do anything. Right? You can be the master of your life. You can be the author of your story. And if you keep getting sidetracked by your inner Godzilla, inner Teen Wolf, like you're just less effective. And so when we teach students how to notice, you know, because the inner critic is basically the combination of the inner Godzilla and inner Teen Wolf. Mm -hmm. We teach them to notice when their inner critic is impacting their behavior, their emotions, their what they'd say to others, that reactivity, mm -hmm. and then to help break that pattern, to break that story. And the more you can break through all these self-limiting patterns, the more successful you can be in achieving your um, personal mission, right? Mm -hmm. To understand who you are and the gifts you can give the world and to actually develop, cultivate, and, and use them. That's great insight. It's basically to be more conscious about what is your own behavior and how to know when you're in which state and how it affects you, right? Yeah, and that's universal. No matter what socioeconomic background you have, you, you're from, everyone has self-limiting behaviors. Like I have friends whose parents are billionaires, and they are just as limited by um, self-sabotaging patterns as anyone else. Mm -hmm. How do you believe the Calm Clarity program is unique in the way it approaches personal success and the types of opportunities it can offer to change makers worldwide? I mean, it's hard to talk about uniqueness because I don't know if it's similar to other programs I'm not aware of. <laughs> I can say that it's original in the sense that like, it's based on my personal experience, my love for neuroscience and mind hacking. And it's based on what I use 
to, you know, grow as an individual and as a leader. And it works for me. It's helped me be successful in, you know, building uh, social impact projects that have made enormous impact with very little resources, mm-hmm. right? Compared to like nonprofits that have multi million dollars, like this brand new uh, initiative I started, Collective Success Network, in just one year, we impacted like somewhere between 300 and 500 students. Right. And we grew from nothing to over 100 something volunteers and like um, campus chapters, you know, in three major universities in the Philadelphia area. And, you know, being in Breen 3.0, right, being able to watch yourself get hijacked by Breen 1.0 and Breen 2.0 and to keep coming back to center so you're never taken over, mm-hmm. right, um, allows you to build really meaningful connections, effective relationships, um, collaborations, and instead of feeling like getting stuck in negativity, you always see a way forward, right? Yeah. And so when you're really centered, you know, like there's storms, but the storms pass, and the storms pass more quickly. You know, you don't get lost in avalanches and hurricanes and drama, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the partners appreciate that. You inspire people the way that you deal with adversity and just keep going um, because you see another path forward. So there's this mental agility, this flexibility that comes from being in Brain 3.0. Because mm-hmm. the thing about a lot of the way that we're trained, we're trained with carrots and sticks. And when we that activates Brain 2.0, right? Yeah. And Brain 2.0 creates very rigid thinking. It's a sense of tunnel vision. This is the right way. You check these boxes and you're done. But it kills creativity. So you're always looking for some preconceived notion of what success looks like, but you're not able to accept what's actually unfolding in front of you and keep adapting and adjusting. Whereas in Brain 3.0, it's like you're co-creating with the universe. Whatever opportunities come, you're constantly adapting and tweaking, you know, the how, and that, you know, invites much more participation, engagement, and creativity from everyone you're working with. And it allows for much more inclusiveness, mm-hmm. right? It's like true diversity, true inclusion, because you give many people a voice. Um, you listen in ways that you wouldn't listen if you were in Brain 2.0. It's to make real connections as well, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you see other people's gifts, and you give them opportunities to use their gifts so they can also bring out the highest expression of who they are. Right. So it's it's kind of a coaching model and it allows you to be the most effective coach that you can be to nurture other people's talents and development. Oh, that's amazing. And how have you seen the social enterprise sector transform and change over the last five years? And where do you see it heading? I mean, that's a great question. I can't say I'm the best person to ask about the entire sector because I've mainly been in my little neighborhood, you know, doing the work that I do. Um, One thing I've noticed, though, is that a lot of universities are already talking about social entrepreneurship, and that amazes me. So we have all these young people who want to understand, like, what is what does it mean to be a social entrepreneur? What is social impact? How do you build a social enterprise? 
And that's something no one asked when I was growing up. It was not even a thing, right? So I love that all these universities are, you know, encouraging students to learn about this. And so many students are so idealistic and hungry that, you know, they they take the classes and they reach out and they ask questions, right? Um, The other thing that I've noticed, and again, I don't know if this is the social enterprise sector, but like, um, you know, more than, you know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a B Corps. So I don't know when B Corps started exactly, but um, I think there, you could get certified as like a B Corporation and then they created um, nas- national statutes where you could actually establish a company as a benefit corporation yeah. and have social impact tied to its articles of incorporation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and that's pretty cool. Like, um, um, that's an amazing uh, shift, right, in corporate culture that so many people are willing to incorporate as benefit corporations and say it's a deliberate and, like, people are just messaging that profits is not what we're about. You know, social impact is just as important as profit. So there's a triple bottom line. And that that is now a norm, right? It's amazing. I love that, you know, colleges, universities are even teaching this and students are so hungry for it. It's great. And what advice would you give those listening to our, who are keen to start a social enterprise? What, what is the best advice that you can give them from your personal experience? I mean, I would tell people that you're still building a business, right? It's a business that does good, but it's still a business. Mm-hmm. So there still needs to be a business plan, a business model. There still has to be revenue. There has to be profits. You know, there has to be value that you're adding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a difference between a pure nonprofit, right? Because a pure nonprofit usually um, uh, is like runs on donations and contributions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but a social enterprise is supposed to build a business that sustains itself and the social impact. And too many, I think, people are very idealistic when they jump into this mm-hmm. and they don't actually have, create a product that people want to pay for, yeah. that people value. So that's the important thing is you still have to create products and services that people are paying would pay money for um, or that the audience you're targeting actually values what you're providing. And so there's like different types of social enterprise models, right? And I think people have to experiment with the ones that makes the most sense for their social mission. So there's some where you're selling to the bottom of the pyramid products and services at a much lower cost. Mm -hmm. But if the cost of developing, creating them, distributing them is higher than the cost of serving, I mean, then the revenues you're bringing in, is not a sustainable model. And so you would have to find a different audience that's willing to pay a premium, a higher price for those similar services or, or products so that you can make your distribution system and infrastructure and operations sustainable. And I think that's hard for people to understand. Mm-hmm. So I think with Calm Clarity, having seen that as a social impact investor, I knew that you know if I was going to create a high quality product and service, I would have to find a way to charge a premium for that among a different audience in order to provide that to you know the beneficiary audience yeah, to make it sustainable. That's great advice, and it brings a way of like uh, also for the people that are buying the service that they know that they're contributing to the wider spread of this knowledge 
to people that maybe cannot afford it. It gives a sense of uh, social involvement as well from everybody, right? Yeah, so I think of all the models I've seen, the buy one, give one, or some variation of that is the most sustainable. Um, the ones where people are just delivering um, like services to the bottom of the pyramid, but their cost structure is very high. Those, those um, business models have a lot of challenges. Okay. Oh, that's great advice. And uh, what inspiring projects or initiatives have you come across recently? We are creating positive social impact. You know, there's a lot of things happening in this space. I can't say that there's anything specifically that's like standing out to me right now. I think it's the movements that have really, like I've noticed is that the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, those types of movements and the students standing up against gun violence and actually pushing for gun reform laws really inspiring me is that people are mobilizing that may not have yet coalesced and gelled into a specific project or initiative, but I think it's heading in that direction. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Starting points, right? Yeah. That there's this like outpouring of energy, activism, dialogue, um, but then it has to be organized into specific movements or initiatives or projects. And um, again, like this generation that's growing up, it's, 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 you know, processing all of this and being very active at coming up with solutions. So I'm waiting to see like what magic comes out of this wave of, of awareness and dialogue. Thank you. And to finish off, besides your own book, clarity and how to use science to rewire your brain for greater wisdom, fulfillment and joy in which uh, you will find a lot of the concepts that Sway was talking about in this interview uh, besides her whole life story that which is very interesting and very uh, captivating, very moving. Well besides your own book which I'm sure you would recommend, at least I would recommend it. Um, Thank what, you. What other books would you recommend to our listeners? Sure. You know, I try to make book recommendations based on what I think is the audience's um, interest, not just what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was doing research on social impact and how to be a social entrepreneur, um, there was a book that really stood out to me as being really, really helpful. And it's called Poor Economics mm -hmm. by Banerjee Abhijit and Esther Duflo. And it basically shares like um, these two entrepreneurs going into bottom of the pyramid situations and interviewing people to show that the decisions that these people are making while they seem silly to a person who's you know trained in economics and comes from a privileged background mm -hmm. in the context of their level of poverty they're actually making very rational decisions to manage risk risk that we don't really understand if we're not living in their situation Mm -hmm. um, so they can seem like self-sabotage, but they're actually self-preservation. Um, and then the other book that's more inspiring um, in terms of just understanding like social change um, that I really found helpful was The Gift of Anger and Other Lessons from my grandfather Mahatma Gandhi by his grandson Aaron Gandhi. And I know that um, a lot of people who, want, who are activists who want to create change do it because there's a sense of outrage against yeah. injustice, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought the book did a great job of helping us understand how to channel and transform anger 
so that it's not destructive. Okay, that's right. Great. And and I think that's something that everybody uh, who wants to create change, like we keep banging our heads against walls. Right? <laughs> yeah, better. <laughs> if you can tell positive impacts, would be best, no? You know, like it's like you're working with the bureaucracy. There's just so many things that are frustrating that can make people angry. And I think, um, you know, having like Mahatma Gandhi's lessons, right, how he dealt with, you know, being thrown in jail over and over, you know, how he was forgiving, how he understood like the human um, struggle and human nature. You know, I think that helps a lot of people be like, okay, if Gandhi can deal with that, I can deal with this. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> good insights here and good inspiration. Sway, thank you very much for your generous insights and time. Yes, and to you guys too, um, thank you for creating a global dialogue on social enterprises and providing all these resources for people who are making change. I mean, it's, I love learning about you guys because now I definitely know there's a community out there that I can connect with. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sway. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.